0: He kōna e pūrangi
2: o Aotearoa. Nā mihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World from RNZ. This week, technology expert Peter Griffin meets scientists from the McDyamard Institute for Advanced Materials and Nanotechnology to discuss the sorts of technologies that might be commonplace in the cities of 2050. Peter's journey starts at Te Papa Museum
3: in Wellington. I'm at to Papa's Tatao Nature Exhibition. It's been running a few months here in Wellington and seems to have been quite well received. Definitely the kids around me here today on their school holidays seem to be loving this quite diverse showcase of our natural history. But the bit I'm really interested in is towards the end of the exhibition where we start to look towards the future and the impacts we're having on the planet. Things like plastics in the ocean, the degradation of our fresh waterways and the various impacts of climate change. I'm looking at a big image of a city in 2050 in front of me, how it might look, and it's not the sort of Blade Runner-style cityscape that you've seen in sci-fi movies. It's actually more akin to a supercharged Singapore. It's very clean, it's very lush, very modern-looking. The skyscrapers have all this greenery growing out of them. There's a sort of Hyperloop-style light rail system in the foreground here. But there's also some really interesting technologies that have been built into this city that I'm told will likely be part of any city in 2050. And I'm going to talk to a couple of scientists that have been heavily involved in envisaging the city of 2050. I'm going to ask them what they're working on and talk about these underlying technologies that could make a future city cleaner, greener, and more sustainable.
1: I'm Justin Hodgkiss. I'm co-director of the McDiamond Institute and a scientist at Victoria University of Wellington. Uh, in the McDonmond Institute, we study material science, and in particular, materials for sustainability. The basic research needs to create a sustainable future. My particular area of research is in materials for next generation solar PVs and that's been my input into the display that we're looking at now. So we see
3: increasingly around New Zealand these rigid solar panels. They're made of silicon and glass and various metals in there as well. How are we transitioning from these solid panels to flexible film-based solar cells?
1: Yeah, so the thing with silicon, which is today's technology, is that in order for it to perform its function, and its function is that of a semiconductor, which is to both absorb light and conduct electricity. So it needs to absorb visible light and then convert that light energy into electricity. Um, And in order for silicon to do that, firstly... There needs to be enough silicon there for it to absorb all of the light that comes on it. And that means it needs to be many microns thick, tens, hundreds of microns thick. And in order to conduct electricity well, it needs to exist in crystals. And so the fact that you need a lot of it in these crystals means that it needs to be made with very high purity in a rigid polycrystalline thing. And, and that's why it needs a, a solid substrate underneath it, because otherwise it would just crack and it would no longer conduct. So that's why we, we have silicon on rigid cells. Now let's think about the alternative that I'm working on. Basically, you need to replace the semiconductor silicon with a different semiconductor, something else that absorbs light well and conducts electricity well. And uh, so the type of semiconductors that we're working on that have a huge amount of promise are called organic semiconductors, and they're essentially made of carbon-based molecules or polymers, and they have a number of, of benefits. The first being that you hardly need any of it to absorb light. They absorb much more strongly than silicon does. And so that means that you can have a very, very thin film when things get thin, they're very flexible. So you imagine, you know, a stack of newspapers, it's really hard to bend. But then if you go down to just a couple of sheets of newspapers, it's really, really bendy. It's kind of the same thing here. So the, the flexible, lightweight, you can formulate them as an ink that just gets printed. And you can print them onto a flexible substrate, and you're left with something that's very, very lightweight. So what we're talking about here, Justin, is sort
3: of like a, a type of wallpaper,
1: Yeah, wallpaper is a really good analogy. And in fact, if you look at this sample here, it it does look a lot like wallpaper. It kind of looks like a giant photographic film. And it's manufactured in a roll-to-roll process where they take a plastic substrate and fly it under a printer that deposits an electrode, then it deposits the semiconductor, maybe another layer of something, another electrode, and and seals it all together. And so you would buy a roll of it and then put that on walls, on the roof. There's no reason it has to be on the roof, though, because a lot of light does fall onto walls. It could even be used in place of windows. Of course, you need light to get through windows, but you could, you know, many windows, most of them, in fact, in, in... in office buildings, are tinted anyway. You need to get rid of a lot of the light, otherwise it gets too hot. Or And so you could actually be generating electricity from the light that you would otherwise want to filter out.
3: Yeah, I mean, tinted windows, semi-transparent, so you could literally absorb the energy... By having a film across the entire surface of a a skyscraper for instance?
1: Absolutely and the other thing that you can do so if you look at the samples in front of us they're kind of ready and that reflects the properties of the semiconductor. It's essentially which colours it absorbs versus which it reflects or transmits. Ideally for energy efficiency you want it to absorb all colours and it would look kind of black but there are very good reasons aesthetically why you would like to use different colors and, and so if you can use very nice looking colors it sacrificed a little bit of energy efficiency it gives you a lot more architectural options and a lot more ways to design the city of the future in a way that really feels right so we're moving from quite
3: thick substances to very thin substances. We're working at the nanoscale here with these film-based solar panels. What's the efficiency going to be like in 2050 compared
1: to what we get from conventional panels today? So a conventional panel today is around about 20% power conversion efficiency. And, and we measure that in terms of the power, electrical power that you get out, divided by the solar power in watts that shines on a certain area. Uh, and actually, the thermodynamic limit is 30%, or just over 30%. Uh, so 20% is reasonably good, and in a lab, you would get just over 25%, which is quite close to the, close to the limit. Now, the next-generation printed ones that, that we're working on, in the lab, they're about 16%. So they're almost as efficient in the lab as the silicon ones that you get on your house are today, Um, probably about 10% less efficient on a lab-to-lab comparison. It's been just in the last couple of months that they've jumped about 2 or 3%. When I first started working in this area just over 10 years ago, their efficiencies were about 4%, so about four times that now. And it all comes about, if you look at the lab efficiency over time, it goes ahead in steps and jumps, and that's really a hallmark of innovation.
3: Tell us a bit more about the fundamental research you're working on you're talking about shaving up photons and and things like that what sort of materials are you working with to actually do that and how fundamental is this we've heard a lot about about flexible sort of solar cells being developed around the world what's the the bit here that you think that you can sort of break through and and come up with something innovative that might make its way into a product
1: So in my lab, we're really interested in exactly what happens after light is absorbed. And ideally, we want to see that light being converted really efficiently into electricity. And to do that, we need to be able to see things happening on an extremely fast timescale. And we're talking about femtoseconds or picoseconds. So that's a femtosecond is a millionth of a billionth of a second. And we can actually quite easily look on that timescale using lasers that have pulses that are that short, and, and those are readily available for labs these days. And so we're kind of doing strobe photography on that timescale to, to piece together how light is converted to electricity. In my lab, we, we don't make the materials ourselves, but we work with labs in the McDymond Institute and all around the world, actually. People send us samples of the new materials that they've been designing to get the insights that we're able to deliver about how they convert light into electricity, what happens when you tweak the molecule and change the side chain or change you know, an oxygen atom for a sulfur atom? How does that affect the whole process? And together we can formulate design rules and figure out how to design better materials. And that's what's happening today. And, and when you see the efficiency stepping forward in big bursts, it's, it comes about from new understanding that we've developed.
3: And what about the, the lifespan of them? A typical solar panel on a roof now, you might, what, get maybe 20 years of life out of it. How will that change by 2050 when we have these sort of thin, flexible uh, films on buildings?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. The short answer is that we don't really know because the technology hasn't been around long enough for us to see how long it lasts. But people do what is known as accelerated ageing, where you take a device and you put it under really intense light, humid conditions, heat for a really long time to kind of... um, simulate the wear and tear that it would get from being out on your roof for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And um, the last that I saw, the accelerated ageing tests were, and and this was actually several years ago that I looked into the details, they were lasting for 8, 10 years, which is a lot longer than people expected for these organic semiconductors. And it's obviously, obviously very important that that is improved because building materials you know it's a very conservative industry in the sense that you need things to last for as long as you say they will and and people don't want to be you know fixing things every 6 months but on the other hand they are different to regular photovoltaics and they in once manufacturing is scaled up they should be much lower cost just the intrinsic you know the weight and the manufacturability is amenable to much lower cost manufacturing so as long as the cost per watt of output is really competitive it is entirely possible that they could be replaced more frequently and recycled. And even now that cost per watt equation is, is dropping quite dramatically isn't it? Dropping dramatically and it will drop even more dramatically as manufacturing scales up. So if you look at the history of silicon PVs the efficiency the, and that's really the science part was really done in the 80s and early 90s and then the efficiency is saturated. Since then, the manufacturing has really kicked on and that has driven the price down. And in, in, the, in the next generation technologies, we're still really at the really steep growth of the science part of things, the efficiency, the understanding. The manufacturing is just starting to happen and, and there's plenty of room for that to scale up and drive the cost down really low.
3: How confident are you that these types of flexible, thin solar films are likely to to be a big contributor to a typical city's energy production
1: by 2050? Uh, I certainly think they will be by 2050 and hopefully a long time before then. Um, as I said, you know, looking at the history of silicon, lots of great science done in the 80s and 90s, then manufacturing, and now, in the, you know, we see installed capacity of silicon doubling about every two years, a little bit like Moore's law, you know, exponential scaling, hallmark of technology uptake. So, silicon PV really big in the world now. You know, we're a couple of decades behind that with the with the printed PV, in a really exciting scientific phase now. And so I expect that that they'll be really, really at the forefront in cities in the next couple of decades.
3: I'm driving through the lush and green-looking Manawatū. I'm on my way to Massey University to meet another scientist who was involved in the creation of that infographic that's on display in Te Papa at the moment. As I drive, I'm releasing carbon dioxide from the tailpipe of my car. There's an internal combustion engine in this vehicle and that's really the problem we're looking at in this episode, the fact that whatever industry you're examining, whatever facet of society you look at in New Zealand, we're producing too many carbon emissions and that is having a heating effect on the planet. We talked to Justin Hodgkiss in Wellington about one potential solution to that problem, creating more green energy. And he envisages a world in 2050 where we have photovoltaic solar cell panels across all sorts of surfaces and buildings uh, in 2050. Another part of the solution is a little bit more complicated. It involves actually taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. We've put all of this carbon into the atmosphere and now we need to remove some of it and put it somewhere where it isn't going to have that greenhouse heating effect. I'm on my way to Massey. The man I'm about to meet is heavily involved in his lab in coming up with technology that will literally filter the carbon out of the atmosphere and may be an answer to the problem we have of too much carbon accumulating in the atmosphere.
4: So my name is Shane Telfer. I'm a chemist at Massa University and in the School of Fundamental Sciences here. And I'm also a principal investigator with the McDermott Institute for Advanced Materials and Nanotechnology.
3: So Shane, you've been involved in this beautiful infographic down in Tapapa. Uh, it looks pretty amazing. And one of the things I noticed up on the, the hills in this infographic, we see these interesting tree-like structures. What are they?
4: Right. So we work closely with the graphic designers as they're putting these together. It was a really interesting uh, process to go through and to sort of contemplate how a future city might look. The structures that they've put up on the hills here are CO2 capture devices, if you like. So CO2 being carbon dioxide. So they're very uh, large structures that will draw air through them. And sieve out the carbon dioxide molecules from the air. So the thing about carbon dioxide is that uh, it's a huge problem causing global warming, but it's only present at about 415 ppm, so that's parts per million. So that really what that means is only one in 25,000 molecules in the air is actually CO2. So you've got all the remaining molecules there being something else, largely nitrogen, oxygen, a bit of water vapor, and so on. What these structures are doing is drawing through all of the air and then selecting out just those few CO2 molecules, which are the really troublesome molecules, and not getting bogged down and and, and clogged up, if you like, with the other molecules, other constituents of the air. We see these as being kind of part of a future city where we're seeking to generate what are called negative emissions. And so rather than positive emissions that would be releasing CO2 into the atmosphere, these structures would be responsible for negative emissions. That is reducing the amount of CO2 that's in the atmosphere. And as it turns out, this is really important for uh, mitigating climate change and more or less baked into every realistic climate scenario that's put forward. So, for example, in the Paris Accord, there's a big report came out on how to limit global warming to uh, maximum temperature rise of of 1.5 degrees. Now, that sort of temperature rise ought to be manageable on a global scale and not cause too much havoc. But if we are to achieve that, Um, all the uh, scenarios embed negative emissions into them. So in addition to reducing reliance on fossil fuels and our emissions of CO2, what we need to do is be actively reducing the amount of CO2 in the uh, environment. Take us inside one of these towers. Break down for us the exact technologies that exist in them. Inside of these, these towers... We have a porous material, and so the sorts of porous materials that we work on are called MOFs, metal organic frameworks. And so from the outside, they don't look like anything remarkable. They look like a salt crystal or a sugar crystal, and you can't really tell. But on the inside, they have tiny, tiny pores on the scale of the gas molecules. And so they're able to catch gas molecules as they pass through them. As I was saying before, what we really need is for these materials to be very, very selective. So what we would envision is is producing these materials, we're going to make a large quantity of these materials and have them act as sieves or filters inside these co 2 captured devices. And so the the idea would be that the air will pass through uh, these devices through these tiny little sieves and fish out just the CO2 and let all of the other constituents of the atmosphere pass through, so the nitrogen, oxygen, and so on.
3: Do they act sort of as a powered fan sucking the air through this filter?
4: Yes, so you'd actually have to pass the air through. They they wouldn't be um, able to... uh, You you couldn't rely really just on on diffusion of the air through them, so there will be some sort of fan there so to force uh, the air through and so that you actually can imagine... Uh, how a sieve works where you you pass uh, a material through a sieve and it collects one fragment or one, one part of the mixture that you're dealing with and so here we're doing a similar thing, taking the air as a giant mixture, using a fan to pass it through these materials and where we sieve out just the CO2 from them
3: So you're left with this sort of dirty fan, I suppose, that has a heck of a lot of carbon material in there. What do you do with them then?
4: Right, so in the end, we'll uh, so-called reach saturation. So the pores in these materials that are able to capture the CO2 will eventually uh, fill up with that carbon dioxide. And so then we'll have to go through a process of emptying or regenerating them. So we're working on materials that have this kind of Goldilocks zone where they can capture the CO2 selectively, fairly strongly, but not too strongly. They're saturated, they're loaded with CO2, it's what we do then then heat them and drive off the CO2. That CO2 is stored somewhere else and we are not ourselves focusing on solutions to what we do with that CO2. It's a major concern. Obviously, we don't want to release it back to the atmosphere. Others, other people um, are working on geological solutions where it might be buried underground, but I think one of the best solutions is to actually use it. People like Carbon Engineering in Canada are really looking at ways to convert that CO2 into usable fuels. So we can then have, if you like, a closed cycle of fuel use, carbon emissions, carbon capture, and then conversion back into fuel. And
3: what's the key to improvements in efficiency with those materials? What are you working on in the lab that is sort of pointing the way forward for better results out
4: of these filters? Right. So there's a few targets that we have. Uh, firstly, your material has to have a fairly high capacity for the CO2. So that means really it, it needs to be able to, to host a significant amount of the CO2, and the C2 second thing is it needs to do that really selectively so as soon as you get co-absorption of say nitrogen or oxygen into your material or too much water vapor then you really decrease the amount of CO2 that can be trapped by it so you've got these really two key metrics that you're trying to optimize simultaneously so that's the uptake and the selectivity. The third thing, really, is the energy required to regenerate the material. So at the moment, um, CO2 can be caught using fairly traditional technology, so-called amine scrubbing, and that's what we we might see employed in in many different industries. The amine technology is good. It has a fairly high uptake and fairly good selectivity for CO2, but its downside is the amount of energy required to regenerate these amine solutions after they've trapped the CO2. So really these new materials that we're working on ideally will be able to fill all three requirements so there's uptake, selectivity, and then a low energy requirement to drive off the CO2 to then cycle them back into a new phase.
3: Is that the really energy-intensive part of the process? The actual sucking of the carbon into these towers and through these filters isn't
4: such a big deal? Not such a big deal. I mean, it's certainly significant. It certainly will uh, factor into the overall engineering design and uh, energy requirements for the process. But the larger fraction of energy consumption would come around that. Uh, regeneration process.
3: And I've seen figures, the, the company Carbon Engineering from Canada is talking about the fact that it can get its efficiency down in economic terms to maybe US $100 per metric tonne of carbon dioxide. Are you seeing big uh, improvements in efficiency and
4: therefore the cost of this technology? Cost for capturing CO2 is something that's really at the forefront of everyone's minds and and the the, the magic figure at the moment is $50 US per tonne. So Carbon Engineering and you've come out and said they can do it for about that, maybe a little little more. The sorts of materials we're working on at the moment, so you have to make them, you have to pay to produce them on scale, and so there's a cost involved there. At the moment, uh, they wouldn't be competitive on a cost basis. But we're really thinking that the current prices for CO2 capture are probably a little on the cheap side. So in the end, where th- this is probably more of a political thing, but where um, the price of emitting carbon becomes more expensive. And so if you like sort of carbon taxes or the price of carbon uh, becomes more expensive, when that happens then these other technologies will become viable.
3: Right. And and so that will that will incentivize the uptake of this technology. And exactly. while in this infographic we're we're seeing them sort of scattered around a, a big urban center, yes. we'll also see them next to um, paper mills, um, energy plants, factories, so that they're capturing carbon uh, directly from
4: their industrial processes? Absolutely. And so this is um, so-called point source capture, and it's where you have uh, an industry or uh, an enterprise that emits a lot of uh, carbon dioxide in a very concentrated form. And so the classic case would be smokestack from um, electricity generation, not so much in New Zealand, but overseas where natural gas and coal are used to generate electricity, so the smoke stacks will be generating uh, about 15% CO2, the balance being nitrogen. And so rather than having around uh, 0.04% CO2, as you do in the general atmosphere, then you've got a much larger concentration of CO2. So it would make sense to put these sorts of filters... Uh, directly on those smokestacks. Currently where the aiming technology would be deployed would be on those uh, concentrated point sources of CO2. So we're, yeah, we're looking at, at electricity generation would be a big one there and uh, others like steel manufacturing. Then beyond that, yes, uh, the di- uh, so-called direct air capture and that's what I was alluding to before uh, and that's in the f- infographic where we have these flower-like structures trapping the CO2 from air and that's, that's the ultimate challenge So it's a little easier when we have higher levels of CO2 to filter it out. But the ultimate challenge is the so-called direct air capture. And so certainly materials that were developed here in New Zealand be readily deployed elsewhere. And I think there's a, a really significant opportunity for these materials because we do have uh, companies like Carbon Engineering in Canada and Climeworks in Switzerland who are scrubbing uh, carbon dioxide from the air, trapping the carbon dioxide, sequestering it from air, but using very traditional technology. So they probably have done so from a really pragmatic point of view. They want something that's well-established, that's proven to work, and to be reasonably effective. But I think over time, they will look to newer technologies to implement in their businesses because surely uh, efficiency gains can be made by deploying uh, these new materials. And so that's the sort of potential that these metal organic frameworks we're working on could have. So if we're able to show they have good characteristics and fulfill some of these performance metrics uh, that they require, then I'm sure the, uh, these materials will be highly sought after by these other industries.
3: It's no silver bullet, is it? I mean, we, we're still going to have to get serious about other types of emission reduction here. Exactly. Or, uh, the abatement
4: uh, has to go on, and we, we have to reduce the amount of CO2 that's being emitted, and there's no way around that.
3: Back at Tapapa, I'm keen to ask those kids what they think of that city of 2050. So Noah, what do you see in this picture here?
2: Um, a big tube.
3: So, have you played with the tube? What does the tube do? Uh,
2: it catches gas, catches carbon dioxide, and then, like, does something with it.
3: So, the big red balls, they're the carbon molecules, right? Yeah. So, it's sucking these carbon molecules out of the atmosphere and capturing it in this filter. Yeah. What else do you see up there? What about those things on the hill up there, over here? Uh,
2: carbon towers. What do they do? Uh, They probably, like, catch carbon dioxide and then, like, turn it into something useful.
3: That's right. It's just like that model there. It's actually sucking the carbon out of the air, isn't it? Cool. Very cool. Thanks, Noah. And thanks, Peter.
2: That story was produced by Peter Griffin. He was talking with Justin Hodgkiss from Victoria University of Wellington and Shane Telfer from Massey University, And they are both with the MacDiamond Institute. This Our Changing World podcast from RNZ first aired on the 12th of September 2019. To listen again or find more stories from our vast archive, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World. While you're there, you can sign up for our free weekly email newsletter. RNZ, Our Changing World, and all the other RNZ podcasts are also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and plenty of other podcast apps. Check out my chemistry podcast. RNZ Elemental is celebrating the 150th anniversary of the Periodic Table of Elements, and we are up to plutonium and polonium. There are plenty of other RNZ podcasts to explore. Eating fried chicken in the shower, two cents worth, the detail. Plenty more on a wide range of topics. Stay in touch. We're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. Bye for now. Māte Here at RNZ we want to continue to deliver independent, high quality content for all New Zealanders and we're keen to hear from you. So we've set up a new research community called Your Media Matters. It's a place where you can share your views about program or content ideas, podcasts and topical issues. We'd love you to join. To sign up, head to rnz.co.nz slash your media matters.
0: Botox Cosmetic, botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is great right for you.